0: In war, you always know who the enemy is. It couldn't be clearer. It's the baddies. It's the ones in the other uniform. It's the ones who speak a certain language, wear certain colours. It's obvious who the enemy is. Well, maybe it was in the old days when we fought conventional wars, but it might not be so in a nuclear war. You might not even lay eyes on the enemy in a nuclear war. Your aggressor might be Far underground, in a bunker, or in a silo, on a totally different continent. Invisible, under the earth, pressing buttons, turning keys, reading out strips of numbers. Completely invisible to you. He'll never see you, you'll never see him. The enemy could defeat you, without even setting foot in your country. Indeed, without even bothering to leave his own. Yes, during the Cold War, there was still the prospect of an invasion by the Warsaw Pact countries. It wasn't impossible that nuclear war would begin as a conventional war, with tanks rolling across the ground into Western Europe, and it would then escalate into Armageddon. But the public were surely more concerned about hearing the wail of a siren than the stomp of Soviet boots. An invasion wasn't in the popular imagination as much as a Nazi one had been in the Second World War. Yet the British authorities in the Cold War still had an enemy they were prepared to tackle on home soil and whom they had plans to subdue, control, imprison and even execute. And that was the British people. It was the population that the authorities planned to do battle with. It was the people who would have been the enemy. Ordinary mums and dads, aunties and uncles, students, bricklayers, IT guys, estate agents. That was where the threat came from. That was who kept nuclear war planners awake at night. Never mind an invasion force from abroad. What about the millions who are already here? What about the teachers, housewives, accountants, schoolgirls and postmen turned into furious protesters, angry rioters, starving looters, frantic refugees blocking the roads, impeding the authorities, spreading panic and anarchy. Enemies of the people would be the people themselves, and these people would have to be controlled. And that would be done by your friendly local policemen. So we're going to look at the role of the ordinary Bobby in nuclear war. This is the Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDevil One of the most important tasks of the British police in nuclear war is sounding the alarm. If you want to know how the dreaded wail of the four-minute warning would have reached us, I direct you to my earlier podcast called Attack Warning Red. And there you'll see that the main police stations across the country each had a strange, clunky device inside called a carrier control point. They'd use this on receiving the signal to switch on most of the sirens in their area. So they'd help announce the start of the nuclear war. Although their wartime role, assuming the attack wasn't a bolt from the blue, would have started long before that. One of the first things they'd have done in the run-up to nuclear war is one hell of a big recruitment drive. Retired officers would be asked to come back, Special constables and suitable volunteers would be brought in and given some very short and intensive training. If you've heard my previous episode, Get Out of Jail Free, you'll see that the plan was to release most prisoners from jail in the days before nuclear war. This would free up prisons, which could be used as shelter, for example, either from fallout, as they tend to be big sturdy buildings, or from an angry population seeking vengeance on the authorities. But emptying the jails would also free up most of your prison guards. And I assume the police would be eager to scoop some of them up to bolster their own ranks. But why do they need lots of extra officers? Well, their workload is about to get exceptionally heavy. But also, to be blunt, a lot of them are shortly going to die. Has something to bear in mind with all the planning for the police and also for the fire service and hospitals for example after nuclear war they will be staffed after all by humans and these policemen doctors nurses firemen aren't magically protected from the bomb by virtue of their training or qualifications or skills some will be dispersed around the country in safe areas but many will be with their families when the bomb drops, sheltering under the door or the staircase, just like everyone else. So this huge recruitment drive in the police will be used to plug the awful gaps that are soon to arise through nuclear death. It won't just apply to police officers, it will also apply to admin staff, communication staff, drivers, etc. And the police could further beef themselves up by using special powers to requisition vehicles or fuel. Also, to keep the numbers of staff up, the Chief Constable will be allowed to prevent any officer from retiring or resigning. Imagine that horror. It's your last day. You've served 50 years on the force without getting shot or horribly injured. You've bought your villa in Spain near the nice golf courses. The wife is all packed and ready to go, and your colleagues have got you a carriage clock. But the boss pulls you aside and says, sorry, you're not leaving. What else would the police be doing in this run-up to war? They've beefed up their forces, cancelled all leave, all resignations, all retirements. They've requisitioned whatever cars, fuel and supplies they'll need. Some of the top brass police officers might start heading to local nuclear bunkers where they'll be working with politicians and other specially chosen civil servants, scientific advisors, people from the NHS, from food supply, etc. to form some kind of ramshackle regional government after the bomb. But those police, without the protection of a bunker, and that's probably about 99.9% of them, will either be at their stations, which will be fortified as far as possible against blast and fallout, or they'll be at home, just being ordinary people. The stations will be fortified in the usual way, as the infamous advice in Protect and Survive goes. The windows will be painted white, the building will be sandbagged, all flammable materials will be removed, Water will be stored for firefighting. This is really the same advice offered to the ordinary householder. And that's fair enough, because you can't give special secret advice to the police. The nuclear bomb affects us all in the same way. The only difference, I suppose, is that the police will be given the supplies that they need to fortify their buildings. Any ordinary person who tries to buy white paint or sand at B&Q in the days before nuclear war... ...is likely to find the place stripped bare. So the police have prepared themselves physically, as far as possible. But what are they preparing for? What are their special duties in the countdown to the nuclear attack? Let's start with what is arguably a sinister one. According to the Police Manual for Home Defence, which I have in front of me here, published in 1974, although first issued as the Police War Duties Manual in 1965, it lists the first task of the police as, quote, to maintain internal security, with particular reference to the detention or restriction of movement of subversive or potentially subversive people. End quote. This scenario is covered in Threads, the greatest nuclear war film, which I advise everyone to watch. In Threads, we see a massive, noisy, anti-war protest on the streets of Sheffield, I think a matter of days before the nuclear attack happens. And we see one of the speakers being... Gently bundled into a police car She's not being dragged around There's no obvious police brutality But nonetheless they are Taking her against her will Into a police car Now she's a middle aged lady In a sensible woolly hat She's not an angry young man Inciting rebellion and violence And the overthrow of the government But in this type of atmosphere She is regarded As a potential subversive Everyone else might see her as just an anti-war protester. Just, you know, an old-fashioned lefty who wants to argue against war. Fair enough. You're allowed to do that. But in this situation, when the police are given these special emergency powers, they could see her and her anti-war speeches as subversive, or even potentially subversive. And that is enough to have her taken away in a police car to be held in an internment camp. And that's who the police would be rounding up at this stage. Genuine subversives who are indeed trying to sabotage and overthrow and stir up anarchy. But also, perhaps, nice ladies in sensible hats who say honest things like, as a lady doesn't threads, you cannot win a nuclear war. So if the police are hunting for subversives and potential subversives does that mean they'll be coming for everyone who's ever worn a CND badge or signed an anti-war petition? And if that is the intention will they have the time and the manpower? Duncan Campbell's brilliant book Warplan UK says MI5 at the time of publication thought to have about 20,000 names on its list of subversives and the book says quote although there is a real possibility of some armed incursion by Soviet forces, the main threat is dissident Britons so these dissident Britons these protesters these potential subversives they would be arrested and taken to an internment camp And here's where things get really scary. What would they do with all these people? Campbell in his book suggests that the army could easily throw together a few internment camps. They showed they could do this in the prison officers' strike of 1980, where they very quickly set up camps and had soldiers deal with the prison overflow. Now, we don't know where these proposed internment camps would be, but... Campbell adds the sinister suggestion, quote, it is tempting to suppose that they may have been located in likely major target areas. End quote. Well, that is one way, I suppose, of getting rid of your problem. Round up the subversives and leave them at ground zero. Let the bomb take care of them. So the police have cleared the subversives and the rebels and the troublemakers and the old grannies campaigning for peace. They've got them off the streets. So the remaining population then, they'll all be totally calm, rational and indifferent then. Well, no chance. Another task of the police will be, as it is now, to maintain order. But this task will be hampered exceptionally by the fact that the population at this stage, so close to an imminent nuclear war, are likely to be in a state of fear and panic. To counter this panic, and the heightened and unpredictable behaviours it might spark, police will have to guard what are known as key points, such as petrol stations, food warehouses, uh, sensitive government buildings, for example. They'll also be in charge of keeping essential service routes clear. These are the main roads across Britain, in and out of its cities, and these must be kept clear for official use, whether that's military or civilian. The authorities don't want these roads jammed with panicking refugees trying to evacuate the cities. By the 70s and 80s, there was no evacuation plan in Britain. The advice was stay put, stay at home, do not try and flee. There is nothing to be gained in trying to get away. That may be true, But that wouldn't stop people trying to get away. Surely it's a natural human instinct if you live in a city or beside a whopping great target. Surely you will try and get away, it's only natural. But the authorities didn't want us doing that because then we would block the roads which they wanted for their own use. So the police would keep these roads, these essential service routes clear. They would deny access to any civilians who were trying to escape the cities on these roads. But wouldn't these civilians, if they found their route to a main motorway blocked, wouldn't they just dash along quiet, smaller roads and link up with the main roads at other points? Again, let's turn to Duncan Campbell's book, which has a horribly practical solution to that. He refers to a civil defence conference in 1981, where local councillors heard proposed solutions to stop civilians fleeing the cities and jamming the roads they quote were astonished to hear military and police planners discuss the most efficacious methods whether to put a ring of steel around the cities to block movement or whether merely to control the essential service routes and allow escapees to seal off minor roads themselves through traffic jams, fuel shortages and breakdowns now that's Horrible, but, of course, very, very blunt and practical. Let the poor, miserable refugees flee along the minor roads in the hope of linking up with the motorways. Let them. Let them pile onto these minor roads and they'll soon block them all themselves. And then, of course, they'll find themselves stuck on these minor roads, in these traffic jams, in this gridlock, when the bomb goes off. Reading these plans, it's hard not to see the public as the perceived enemy of the police and thereby the enemy of the state. Instead of catching the bad guys, the police are focused on containing and controlling us, the people. They're arresting people for being merely a potential subversive. And that could, in theory, be for something as simple as speaking at an anti-war rally. They're preventing you from going about your lawful business. You want to fill up the car and take your family away from the city? No, you're not allowed to. Please step back, sir. They're guarding the petrol stations. They're keeping the supply of petrol for official use. They're blocking the roads, again, only permitting them for official use. They will not allow you to flee. It's another horrible example of how nuclear war can mangle the society that we've built. For example, in the post-nuclear NHS, doctors will have to go against their nature and their ethics and everything they've been taught and abandon some people and allow them to die in agony. They may have drugs which would ease their pain, but they can't give them to that person because that person's going to die anyway. So it's not justified to waste that drug on someone who's already going to die. Use that drug on someone who has a chance of survival. So that means allowing someone to suffer. The doctor will not or cannot help you. And this goes against everything which seems natural and just. Likewise with the police. The local policeman won't come to your aid. He won't be keeping the bad guys away. Our civilised society is wrecked in a nuclear war by far more than just the bombs, heat, blast and fallout. But of course, one good question is, would the police be on hand to do this? As with every single plan for nuclear war, the one big unanswered question is always, but would people turn up for work? When we talk about the nuclear bunkers staffed by politicians and the BBC and the police, for example, would these people who were on the list leave their families and make that dash for the bunker? Would the doctor leave her husband and her screaming children to go and tend other people's husbands and other people's children? Same with the police. Would they leave their families so they could be at their posts at the station? Or would they stay at home and look after their own? Indeed, would the police officers be amongst the very refugees that their colleagues were being ordered to hold back? Everything here depends on what seems like a stuffy, old-fashioned British Empire sense of doing your duty. Now, that's very noble, and some people, of course, may intend to do it. But would that intention waver when panic sets in and the family are begging you not to leave them please get us out of here don't leave us to face the bomb alone now what about the police who did their duty who intended to follow the rules and turn up for work if they survived well those police who are at home or at least not in the police station There were rules for them. Even if you're off duty, it ceases to matter. After the bomb, even if you're not on the rota, you're still a police officer, you still need to follow these rules. And the rules were, immediately after the blast, you'll have a short while before fallout descends. And in this short interval, surviving police would be expected to pop their heads out of whichever shelter they're in and make a quick visual assessment of the scene and report it somehow to their station. If they can't reach their local station, if it no longer exists, then try and make contact with any other station and report what the scene is in your local area. And again, this applies whether they're on duty or not. They'll also be ordered to make sure everyone else remains in their shelters, although I hardly think people will need to be told that, and that will apply unless there are urgent tasks to be taken care of, like fires which need to be fought. Again, this is standard um, public information advice. It's sit out and protect and survive. You are advised to use this short interval before the fallout starts to descend, attending to things like small fires. Nuclear bombs, of course, are known for causing small, manageable fires. I hope my sarcasm is being conveyed there. When the fallout begins to descend, and there will be a siren to warn you of that. The police, as with everyone else, must go back into whatever shelter they have. And you need to stay there, of course. We all know that, until the fallout dissipates. And of course, that may be days and days. Those police officers who are at home will need to rely on the arrangements they've made, and that will be the same as everyone else. If they followed their Protect and Survive advice, they'll have made their little inner core or refuge they'll have propped their door against the wall they'll have piled sandbags or luggage or mattresses on top of it they'll have stored foods and some first aid supplies and they'll have a radio and they'll hunker down in there for perhaps up to 14 days awaiting instructions on the radio but those who are at work or at their police stations they will retreat to the fallout room which will be in the station itself and, as we discussed earlier, will have been fortified and prepared in advance. Now the police, like everyone else, will be trapped in there for days while the fallout descends and deteriorates. And if we turn to the police manual, it says, quote, it would be essential for the senior officers to take steps at an early stage to maintain morale at a high level and to sustain the physical well-being of the men in the refuge room. Now that's quite a tall order, and I suppose that's where police officers might fare better than most of us, as we can assume they've got a bit of grit and discipline about them. But how do you maintain physical well-being when physical activity is maybe going to be denied? If the fallout room has no ventilation, then the manual advises against smoking, of course, as that will use up oxygen but it also advises against unnecessary physical activity so that as little oxygen as possible is being used up. So if you're denied physical activity, how do you maintain physical well-being? And of course, how do you maintain mental well-being? That might be even harder still, as the police officers will no doubt be thinking of their families who are above ground somewhere in their own little fallout shelters, perhaps dying from radiation sickness perhaps incinerated and gone already. You won't know. And what about that horrible problem of shelter living? The matter of going to the bathroom? Well, the manual is very blunt and practical on that matter. It says, in general, it says, if no other means are available, so therefore if you can't use the ordinary lavatory in the building, a hole may well have to be pierced through the floor to form a pit. As far as possible, there should be separate receptacles for urine and excreta as the former can far more easily and frequently be disposed of. The general tidiness of the shelter and personnel themselves is a factor which would affect morale. So when we talk about those awful arrangements for going to the toilet, it's not simply the The unpleasantness, you know, the the smell or the unhygienic element or the even embarrassment of it. It's the effect it would have on your morale if you're stuck in this room with no ventilation and that is going on in a pit in the corner of the room. It's going to be, it's going to be almost unbearable if there is no ventilation especially. And that is going to dent morale horribly. This section of the manual keeps stressing that morale must be upheld and maintained if possible. And it says, because when police emerge from refuge, they will have to lead and to set an example to the public. Remember, if you want to contact me about anything on the podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on my Facebook page, Nuclear Britain or through my website, juliemcdowell.com and let me thank all my patrons, of course Um, someone else joined last week so I now have 48 thank you everyone if you want to support the podcast through Patreon just take a look at my site patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo and you can pay whatever you like per month and get various nuclear rewards in exchange let me give a special thanks and a shout out to the following Lucy Stegervald uh, by the way Lucy <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing your surname properly Let me know if not uh, Also Arika Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars Jacqueline Brick, Andrew Key Sam Marco, Richard Grundy Dave Marks, Alan Christie Ellen McHale, Ewan McLeod Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee Sean Nelson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan Peter Lee, Christopher Creva Richard Lewis, Adam Spink Ian McCulloch Linda Wilnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve says Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner, and Gordon McMare. Thank you everyone for supporting the podcast. And let me also say that the music for this podcast has been provided by a band called X. You can find them on Twitter at expand uk that's i expand